Very well done. Well, you can open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Maybe some of you get the magazine Consumer Reports, although who gets magazines anymore, really? Maybe some of you subscribe. Ron does. That makes sense. Some of you subscribe maybe online to get Consumer Reports. And if you're not familiar with the magazine Consumer Reports, the whole idea is that there are so many choices available in front of you that you need help determining which item that you're going to buy is the best or which is the most cost effective or whatever. Uh, Basically, the idea is the magazine tests the products out for you. They give you information so that you can cut through the fog and make a wise consumer decision. So, for example, if one were to have recently moved to the state of Michigan and was being told by many, many people that he needed to buy a snowblower for the coming winter, which is my situation, one may go to Consumer Reports and look at the positives and the negatives of all the different snowblowers, which this is a completely new world to me, Um, And then Consumer Reports would make a recommendation based on which one you should buy, how much you want to spend, all of that. You get the idea. Now, when you buy something based on the recommendation of Consumer Reports, you're making some assumptions there about them. You are trusting that the information they are providing to you is accurate and trustworthy. By purchasing something, you're saying, I trust their information. And I trust that it's, it's going to be beneficial to me. And when you purchase something based on their recommendation, you're actually, maybe you don't think of it this way, but you're actually giving them a certain amount of authority in your life. You're saying you all may dictate what decision I make by the information that you, that you give me. You're allowing them to help you make a decisive action in your life. You read the reports, you buy the snowblower because you trust what they say. And without even thinking about it, most of the time, you are making a judgment call as to the trustworthiness of whatever magazine it is, whether it's Consumer Reports or someone else. You're making a trust a judgment call based on their trustworthiness and based on the authority that you're giving them in your daily life. Now, we're into a series in the book of Mark called, Who Then Is This? And that's the question that people are attempting to answer throughout this portion of the book of Mark. They're, they're looking at Jesus, they're looking at his miracles, at his teaching, his ministry, and they're trying to figure out, they're trying to make a judgment call on who this guy is concerning him and his identity. And so in our section today, we're going to see, again, various groups of people making judgment calls on who Jesus is. And here's what I want you to notice this morning. As they make these judgment calls, it's going to determine the level of authority that they're giving Jesus in their lives, that they believe he has in their lives. So based on who they believe he is, the judgment call they're making of him They're going to end up giving him or denying him a certain amount of authority in their lives. So Mark chapter 3 verses 20 to 35, you can see it on the screen there. We're going to see three judgments concerning Jesus. And these judgments are going to demonstrate the posture, the heart posture of the individuals making them. 
All right, so three judgments concerning Jesus, and each of these judgments is going to demonstrate the heart posture of the person making the judgment. All right, so first of all, and you know the three already, right? Lunatic, verses 20 to 21, and then I'll jump down to verses 31 and 32 as we look at this. But if, you're, if you've been with us, um, if you haven't been with us, that's fine. But if you've been with us, you remember that last time Jesus went up on a mountain with his disciples and he called 12 disciples, 12 apostles to come to him. And he, he did this on a mountain. He did this away from the crowds. But when it comes to his ministry, as we've seen already in the book of Mark, Jesus cannot stay away from the crowds. Look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. I mean, you can picture this situation. Jesus returns from the mountain with his 12 apostles. And when it says that he went home, most likely it's saying that he returned to Capernaum, which has kind of been home base for him. And when it says he went home, he probably went to Peter's house. Again, kind of home base for him. And so he'd been there before. He gathers with his disciples there. The crowds hear that Jesus is back in the city. And they rush to his home or Peter's home. And things get crazy. I mean, imagine being there and the disciples can't even sit down to enjoy a meal together. Because people are barging into the house. People are pressing on Jesus. Maybe they're knocking on the door if they try to shut the door. But they can't even go about business as normal because the crowds are so intrusive. But this time, it's not just the crowds. Another group of people shows up. Look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, it's interesting here that his family shows up. We don't know exactly who this is. There's some indication later on in the passage as to who it is. But word had traveled to Nazareth to at least some of Jesus's family members. And so they show up here. And it seems pretty clear from the text that they show up and they think they're going to save him from himself. That's kind of their mission here. Look at what they say about him. They were going to seize him because they were saying he is out of his mind. They think he's gone mad. I mean, his family had heard. I mean, word had gone all over the place as to what Jesus was doing, the miracles, the teaching that he was, he was giving out, the crowds that were gathering around, the people, his family had heard about the controversies probably with the religious leaders. And they probably are looking at this, looking at one of their own. They've known since he was a, a small child. And they're looking at this and thinking, this is getting out of hand. This is getting nuts. We need to go and pluck him out of this situation, save him from the crowds, save him from himself. He is, he's, he's losing it. He's going crazy. Now, when you stop and you think about that statement that his family members are making concerning Jesus, here's what I want you to notice about that. They are making a judgment call on Jesus, right? I mean, they're determining who he is based on what they've heard. And they're saying that he's crazy. And this judgment call that they make on him leads them to assert their authority over him. Look back at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. 
mean, they're not going to submit themselves to him to ask him how he's doing. They're going in there in order to take control of the situation. They think he's lost it, and they're going in to save him from himself. They want to bring Jesus under their control. Now, look down at verse 31 here. The verses 31 and 32. What happens here? In the passage is Mark uses what's called a sandwich technique. All right. So he starts out talking about one story, his family coming, and then he sort of breaks away from that story, goes to another story in the middle, and then he returns to the previous story. And when he will see this throughout the book of Mark. And when he does this, he wants us to focus in on, on the meat in the middle of the sandwich or whatever it is you put in the middle of your sandwich. He wants us to focus on the center section of the sandwich story. That becomes the emphasis in the passage. But here he uses that sandwich technique. And in verse 31 and 32, he returns back to Jesus's family there. Look at these verses. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Again, you can see it's the same theme that is happening here. They want to assert their control and their authority over Jesus. And whoever this is, his mother and his brothers and whoever else is involved in this family situation here, they have not made a right assessment at this point of who Jesus is. They're not grasping his ministry and they're trying to put themselves in a place of judgment over him. Now, when you think about that, putting yourself in a place of judgment over Jesus, that's what characterizes the first two of our judgments here this morning. The one here dealing with the family thinking is a lunatic, and then the one we're going to see in a minute dealing with the scribes thinking that he's a liar and he's possessed by Satan. That's the mentality that characterizes both of those sets of people. Now think about that for us just for a moment here. Putting yourself in a place of judgment, exerting your authority over Jesus. Imagine doing that. And I think that we often, without even realizing it, act in a similar manner when it comes to Jesus Christ and particularly to the biblical text. We don't submit ourselves to what the Bible says. We put ourselves in authority over Scripture. And we try to manage Scripture. We are the evaluators rather than letting the text evaluate how we're living and adjusting how we're living. We stand in judgment over it. And one of the things that I I think you've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark when it comes to the disciples They may not fully grasp who Jesus is, but when Jesus calls to the disciples, he initiates the call and they respond and they follow him and they submit to him. That's not the case here with either of these first two groups. They're putting themselves in the place of judgment over Jesus. So keep that in mind as we get to our second judgment here. They think his family thinks he's a lunatic And these others, these scribes, think he's a liar. So here we find the scribes are doing the same exact thing, except their judgment of Jesus is even more dangerous than his family. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, 
And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now in Mark, we've met scribes before, right? If you've read up to chapter 3, you know the scribes are the teachers of the law. And we've seen them interact with Jesus before in the synagogues in Galilee. And when we saw them interact with Jesus before, that was the local scribes, the Galilean scribes. But here you can see in verse 22, these scribes come from Jerusalem. And it makes it sound like this is an official delegation coming from the capital. And they're coming because they've no doubt heard about Jesus. They've heard about his miracles. They're coming and they're not just going to say this once, this assessment of him, but they're sort of delivering the religious authorities' official assessment of Jesus and his ministry. And they're publishing this, and they're saying it over and over again. They're telling people about this. The wording here uh, of how they're saying it, the way the Greek is phrased, makes you think they're doing this over and over again, this official declaration concerning the ministry of Jesus. They're spreading this around. And look again at the judgment call that they make. He is possessed, verse 22, by Beelzebul, And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, what's interesting here about this assessment is they're not denying that Jesus is casting out demons, are they? I mean, they're fully acknowledging he's casting out demons. They say it here. They know they're not questioning his works, but their interpretation of his works is what puts them in the place of judgment over Jesus. They're making this judgment call on who Jesus is and how he's doing what he's doing. So what are they saying, essentially? Well, it's pretty clear from the text, but they believe that his supernatural power, which he obviously has, they believe that supernatural power comes from the fact that he is possessed by Satan himself. He is in league with the prince of the demons. And they want, they want people to believe and assess that Jesus is using dark, supernatural, satanic power to be able to do the things that he's doing. Now, one of the things that we learn from that assessment of Jesus is faith is not an automatic response to miraculous proofs. You'll sometimes maybe hear people say, well, if God would just do this, I would believe in him. If he would perform this miracle, then I would believe in him. And sometimes we can think ourselves, well, if God would just manifest himself in a visible way, people would believe. Surely they would believe. And this scene here argues against that for sure. Why? Because it's about the scribes' evaluation of Jesus. They have placed themselves in authority over Jesus. And they've given themselves the right to appraise his ministry. Look how Jesus responds in verses 23 to 26. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus uses a couple parables, which we'll learn about the importance of parables in the coming weeks. We get into chapter 4, but he uses a couple of parables here to make his point. Let me summarize his point for you in these verses. 
Jesus is saying it makes no sense whatsoever for Satan to start a civil war with himself. It doesn't make sense. It gives him no advantage to use his own power and his own authority to cast out demons that are working for him from people. It doesn't make sense at all. But look at verse 24, and I want you to notice the particular illustration that Jesus starts this with in verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If you've been with us in Mark, you've seen discussion of kingdom before, haven't you? I mean, kingdom is what Jesus is preaching, right? He's proclaiming and calling people to the kingdom of God. And he's doing miracles that are demonstrating the power and the authority and the arrival of the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus uses this illustration, this parable here, it's not accidental. And what he's doing is he's saying Satan, in one sense, does have a realm of authority. In one sense, Satan does have a kingdom. And Jesus wants us to understand that his kingdom is in opposition to Satan's kingdom, his dominion. But Jesus also wants us to understand that these exorcisms that he's been doing, casting demons out of people, those are an illustration or those are a very real uh, way that the kingdom of Satan is being defeated. When, when those demons are cast out, it's like the advancement of God's kingdom and the pushing back of Satan's kingdom. And Jesus explains here in verse 26 that really when all of this is happening, look at the end of verse 26, but is coming, Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Ultimately, through this, through Jesus, Satan's kingdom is going to come to an end. Now, If you think back into your Old Testament, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you understand that quite early in the Bible, God sets up this battle, this conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the authority of Satan. We've referred to this verse many times, but this is in the curses that God lays down after sin. This was spoken to the serpent. I will put enmity division there will be battle between you and the woman and between your offspring those that resemble the serpent that are like the serpent and her offspring and then here's the culmination here's what's going to happen he shall bruise your head he'll crush your head and you shall bruise his heel and in many ways the entire story of the old testament flows from this promise here, right? There's conflict. There's some people that try to destroy God's dominion and kingdom and his reign over his people. And there's other people who come under his reign and are his people that he calls out in order to advance his dominion and his reign. And God's people, Israel, over and over again in the Old Testament, fall victim to placing themselves in their sinfulness under Satan's authority. They worship idols. They pursue wrong and false gods over and over again in the Old Testament. And there's this constant conflict between the kingdom of God and the authority in the kingdom of Satan. And ultimately, in the Old Testament, you know the storyline, God judges Israel for their sinfulness, doesn't he? 
And what does he do? How is that judgment enacted? He exiles them from the land. They're no longer in the promised land. They get kicked out of the land. But as we've gone through Mark, I've tried over and over again to read to you promises from the prophets where God speaks very kindly to Israel. And he's judged them and he's kicked them out of the land. But in the prophets, he promises to them, I'm going to come to you again. And I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring you back into relationship with me. We read one of these promises last week. I don't know if you remember this, but Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. He's looking forward from this time of exile and saying, I'm going to come back to my people and I'm going to restore you. And then further in this chapter, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. His people had been afflicted. They'd been under oppression from their own sinfulness, but certainly from the kingdom of Satan. And then look at this in Isaiah 49. Verses 24 to 26. Look at the illustration here that Isaiah uses. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. And he continues on there. Now, having read that, I hope you're still in Mark chapter 3. Look at what Jesus says here about the conflict between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. Verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man or the tyrant. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, I think Jesus is using veiled language here, but it wouldn't surprise me if he was thinking back to Isaiah 49 and this promise of God returning to his people and plundering the mighty who have oppressed his people and having victory over them and then rescuing his people. And every time that Jesus performs an exorcism and he casts a demon out, it's an enactment of this promise. And it's showing that his kingdom has arrived and he is plundering the strong man. Jesus shows up on the scene and Satan is unable to continue oppressing his people. And so Jesus shows this by these exorcisms. But ultimately, there's an even bigger way that Jesus plunders Satan and his kingdom. And you know what that is? Isaiah 53. You know this passage. Look at what it says here. Therefore, I will divide him, the servant, Jesus, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. His victory through his death over the kingdom of darkness will rescue his people. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Ultimately, it's through his death that Jesus will finally and fully crush the head of the serpent, end the reign of Satan, rescue his people, 
And he'll do exactly what verse 27 says. He is going to plunder the house of Satan. Now, Jesus here, I think, presents his work as liberation. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, God's first promise after the fall is the promise of victory. There's going to come a seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what the cross does. And I love it because the cross is the ultimate irony in many ways, isn't it? It seems like it's Jesus' weakest hour. Like he has been defeated. He dies a shameful and brutal death. But it's in his moment of incredible weakness that he plunders the kingdom of Satan. He has victory over him. And he brings us along with that victory. We are in need of liberation from the powers of darkness. Israel was here, and human beings are still in need of that liberation. And Jesus provides it as his kingdom comes through his sacrificial death and resurrection. Now, back to Mark chapter 3. This picture of Jesus and the liberation, God's kingdom arriving, Jesus standing on the opposite side from Satan of this kingdom... This is what the fair or the scribes failed to see. And this was a massive problem. Look at verse 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin for. And here's Mark's explanation for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What's going on here? Why does Jesus say this? Well, this is the full grown result of putting yourself in authority over Jesus and evaluating him and thinking you have the right to judge the biblical text and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the end game for these scribes. They have flipped everything on its head. They've taken something that is very clearly an indication of the kingdom and authority of God and the work of the holy God, and they have attributed that work to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit. Their hearts are so hard that they can't even acknowledge the work of God here. Everything has been flipped on its head. And when that happens, when you've gone that far, when your heart is that hard, you don't have any hope of salvation. Because you'll never see your sin and you'll never repent and come to Jesus in faith. You have placed yourself on the throne. You are in the highest authority. And you can't can't come to Christ like that with that hard attitude and with that posture toward him and his work. Now, just a side note here, pastorally. If you're sitting there concerned that you have committed the, the, the unpardonable sin here, the sin of it, that it, there's no forgiveness for, if you're concerned about that, you haven't committed this sin. Because people that have committed this sin are so far down this road, they don't even realize it. And they're so committed to their own authority, and they're so self-centered that they don't even know it. And so if you're concerned about that, you're not down that road that far. Those people can't even recognize the work of God in Jesus Christ. And that's a terrible position to be in. So what's the root here of these first two 
judgments that people are making. The root here of these two judgments is putting yourself on the throne. And at the bottom, it's, it's arrogance and it's pride. It's pride fully grown. Where you are the assessor, you're the judge, you're the authority. And I think what's scary about the scribes here is that they, I don't think they realized what they were doing. I think they were absolutely self-deceived and they didn't know it. One of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. It seems good. It seems comfortable. It seems nice. It seems holy. But its end is the way to death. That's the scary thing about these guys here. They were self-deceived. Their way seemed right to them. They thought they were doing God's work. But they put themselves in the authority over Jesus. So... The first two, the lunatic assessment and the liar assessment, those are obviously not the right ways to assess the ministry of Jesus. Those are putting yourself in authority over him. So what is the right way? Well, at root, the right way to assess the the ministry of Jesus is to let the ministry of Jesus assess you. It's to not put yourself in authority over him. It's to come to his word and his ministry and humbly submit to it. And that's what we find in verses 33 to 35. Lord, this is the judgment where Jesus is the Lord and you gratefully and humbly acknowledge that. Look at verses 33 to 35. After he, his, his siblings, his family come back. Look what Jesus says to bring this whole passage to a close. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And what Jesus says here is remarkable, isn't it? Membership in his family is not based on blood relation. It's not based on some status that you're born into. It's based on the rightful recognition of Jesus as the Lord and as the authority. And because he's the Lord and the authority, he is worthy of my obedience. And I humbly and gratefully give him that authority over my life. I acknowledge the authority that he has. This is the right posture to have toward Jesus and the work of Christ. So what does he mean here in verse 35? Look there with me. What does he mean here when he says, for whoever does the will of God? What does he mean by that when he says that? Well, I think what he means here is he's, he's talking about a functional authority in my life. It's a functional authority. What does that mean? Well, I went to the dentist a few weeks ago, all right? And I hadn't been in a while. They cleaned my teeth and they said, you, sir, have cavities and a good number of them. And so you need to come back here a couple more times and we are going to fill those cavities. And that's a very unpleasant thing to have happen. Well, when they told me that, I 
I accepted their word. I believed them. And I walked back into that dentist office knowing full well that they were going to numb my face up. All the way back to my ear. The weirdest thing. They were going to numb my face up. And then they were going to take a drill. And they were going to drill into my teeth. And then they claim they're going to fix my teeth. So that the cavities don't grow anymore. And so what happened for me was that dentist had functional authority in my life. He said it. I said, okay, I go back. I let you do those things to me. And now I floss every day (laughs) because of the functional authority that the dentist had in my life. That is a silly illustration, but that's the posture that we take toward God's word, isn't it? He says it, and it has an impact in our daily life. It changes the way we live. I do things differently now because of what that dentist said. And that's what it means to have a functional authority. It means I don't place myself in the evaluator position when it comes to God's word. I humbly submit to his word and obey. J.I. Packer said this about authority, and I love this. We talk about authority in order to sort out what factors in a situation should determine our attitudes and actions. The goal of such talk is to ensure that right decisions properly reached do in fact get made. Whenever we credit something with authority, a textbook, a ruling, a document, or whatever, we mean that in its own sphere it is more or less decisive as a guide to what should be said or done. That is biblical authority. Now, this doesn't just mean listing out all the commands of Scripture and saying, I'm going to try to obey all of these commands because God has functional authority in my life. Submitting to God's authority through his word means that I place my life into the story of Scripture. Because Biblically, we've talked about this before. The Bible is a narrative. It's a big story. It's the comprehensive story of the universe. And so claiming it as an authority in my life means I acknowledge that the Bible is the true story of the universe. And I let that story dictate my life. It gives shape and purpose to my life every single day. The story of the Bible is the decisive guide to how I speak and how I act and what I believe every single day. But as you do that, as you try to live that out, and that's what we're trying to do every week when we come in here. Put ourselves under the story of scripture and let the Bible dictate how we live. But as you do that, it's going to bump up against what your culture tells you should be an authority from the time you are a small child the culture has tried to to nudge you and shape you in a direction that puts you in the seat of authority i am the evaluator i am the master of my of my sailboat the master of the sea i make the decisions in my life i sit in the seat of judgment and even when it comes to the bible I'll evaluate it and I'll see if it fits into my life. And we do that rather than the opposite way around. Ceding to the Bible the authority to dictate how we live. Now there are lots of very practical ways that I could flesh this out for you. But let me just give you one area that I hope will make this clear to you. 
This is a way I think that I certainly do this. I think it's a way that we, we demonstrate that our functional authority is self rather than God. Okay. We complain. What is complaining at root? You might think, well, complaining is no big deal. Complaining at root is my way of saying I know better than God. It's my way. It's me functionally. When I complain, it's me functionally saying, God, you did not do this right. Even though you are sovereign and good and powerful over the entire universe, there is a way that you could have done this better. And I, Nathan Williams, know that way. And I would like to inform you of that way by complaining in this circumstance and this situation. Complaining is not a small sin. We read in Corinthians where Paul goes back and talks about the Israelites complaining and what the issue was there. It's one of the most common ways that you and I demonstrate that our functional authority is not God in our lives. One author um, that I really enjoy, uh, Nate Wilson is his name. He describes our reaction to difficulties as a demonstration of our lack of faith in God. So essentially... God's not the authority in my life. And I love how he phrases this. Read this to you. When faced with unpleasantness or trouble, there are only two ultimate responses. Okay? So something difficult comes into your life. You have two responses. And there are variations of these responses. On the one hand, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's one response. On the other hand, curse God and die. Variations on the latter, on the curse God and die, can include whining, moping, self-pity, apathy, or rage. Variations of the former can include laughter, song, retellings, and an energetic attack of obstacles. That demonstrates that God is, is the authority in my life, and I trust him with what he's doing with his providence And his word and the story of scripture has so shaped my thinking that I'm going to respond to this trouble and this difficulty with laughter. Because God's in control. And man, that's tough, isn't it? I mean, this is like the mundane, daily walk with the Lord. And this is right where we live. How do I respond to life circumstances? Do I demonstrate that my functional authority is the story of the Bible and how the Bible presents God? Or do I demonstrate and shout to Almighty God, you are not doing this right? Who is your functional authority? And there's tons of other applications for that, but that was one to try to make it clear. Do you place yourself, as these first two groups did, in the judgment seat of God, his character, his word, his Christ? Or do you humbly submit to what he says? That's what it means in verse 35 here. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's what it looks like to do the will of God. It means to live under the vision of reality presented in Scripture and obey the commands that are clearly given in the Bible. So, the question for us to consider this morning, are we like the scribes? Are we like the family of Jesus? Or are we part of the true family of God? And that's not something you earn. 
It's something that's given to you by his grace. And do you acknowledge that and then live in accordance with that glorious reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and respond to the things that happen in your life happily, humbly, and with the tone of submission to God and what he's done. Submission to Christ as the king. I hope it's the latter. If it's not, humbly submit to his word in repentance. Rejoice in the fact that Christ has died for your sins. Enjoy that and then walk this week in humble submission to him as you seek to obey and to respond appropriately to his word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We would be absolutely lost without it. We're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful that he saves us, that his blood frees us from our sins, from our self-centeredness, from the place of judgment on, on your word. We're so thankful that the work of Christ flips everything on its head and puts you on the throne and dethrones self. And that ultimately brings us happiness and satisfaction and joy and an eternity with you. I pray now, even as we come before you, the Lord's table, that we would evaluate these things and we would just spend the time rejoicing in the work that you have done. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.